From the Financial Times in London, I'm John Murray Brown and this is FT News. There are two sides to the story of Martin McGuinness, the Irish politician who died this week at the age of 66. In his young adulthood, he jointly led the most dangerous and tenacious terrorist movement in Western European history and commanded members of his IRA brigade to bomb his native city, Derry, and to hunt out suspected British informers and collaborators, apparently regardless of the toll in human lives. In his later incarnation, however, he was to become a peacemaker, on good terms with his erstwhile foes in the Unionist community, and respected by the political establishment of the UK and Ireland. Here to discuss his achievements and flaws is Jimmy Burns, who interviewed McGuinness for the FT in 1990, when the peace process was still in its infancy, and in fact most of the activities were going on in secret. Jimmy, tell us how you came to meet McGuinness in October 1990, and what was the political backdrop to the conflict at that time? Well, John, I mean, at that time I was a senior reporter with the FT and they sent me to cover Northern Ireland and evidently at that time the key person to see was Martin McGuinness. I mean, anyone who knew anything that was going on in Northern Ireland realised that he was a sort of key figure in the IRA and he also straddled the political party Sinn Féin. At the time, as you said, there were secret negotiations going on. But critically, of course, the IRA military campaign was still continuing. There were still attacks both in Northern Ireland and, more importantly, there was a threat to the mainland. And I was lucky in terms of putting out feelers and saying, would I be able to see Martin McGuinness? I did it through various Republican sources. And I found myself in Derry in the Sinn Féin offices on the bog side. And to my surprise, in came Martin McGuinness. I must say, I was absolutely terrified at the time because what I do remember very clearly of that first meeting was he had these very steely blue eyes that looked straight at you. And I knew, of course, his whole background, uh, the street fighting man, the unit commander in Derry after Bloody Sunday. And this man had blood on his hands, but he was also a key political figure. So it was an important moment for me. And I was, in a sense, professionally delighted to get that scoop. Would you cite any other signs that he was a very senior figure? I recall the Milltown Cemetery event, but perhaps you recall it rather better. Yes, well, of course, listeners need reminding the sort of hardline unionist fanatic who attacked a Catholic funeral in Milltown Cemetery in Belfast and started shooting. What I do remember of that was Martin McGuinness was there and he was the only one evidently not to hit the deck, i.e. it showed to me that he was obviously a trained soldier and he confronted this guy and he was a key figure in that. The other anecdote, which I remember very clearly, was in a pub in the Bogside, which is actually called the Bogside Inn, very famous. I was calmly having a pint of Guinness there, minding my own business when, to my surprise, in came an advance party of what I could only describe as heavies, followed by Martin McGuinness. And it was rather like seeing a scene out of The Godfather because the entire pub sort of suddenly stopped everything they were doing, all the conversations, bowed their heads to McGuinness as he swept through the corridor and up some stairs into a private meeting upstairs. And it was evident that this was the key man in the Republican movement. And as we can hear from your clip here, McGuinness was not able to admit his role as an IRA commander at that stage. I will make no admissions whatsoever about the role I played in those days of which you speak about in, in the early 70s. It wouldn't be uh, sensible or, or reasonable for me to do so. But uh, it is true to say that uh, 
at that particular time, and in a dairy context, uh, the Irish Republican Army did then command, as, as it still does now, a great deal of uh, admiration and respect from within the, the nationalist community, and that encompasses also people who would be within the nationalist community politically uh, opposed to uh, to republicanism. Strange as it may seem, but it is true that even within the ranks of the SDLP, uh, there are a lot of people who do have an understanding of uh, why there, there was and is uh, an Irish Republican army. It's true to say that uh, even within uh, the enemies of, of Irish Republicanism, um, within British military commanders in the city, there would have been, uh, I, I think, a, I feel like a grudging respect for the efficiency and uh, effectiveness and the courage of uh, IRA volunteers at that time. And the British media have attributed to me uh, a, a role in that. I, I mean, from a legal point of view, I, I can't talk about that. Wow. And maybe someday I would be able to talk about that yeah. and would be only too glad to talk about what the, my role in the struggle for, for freedom in Ireland. But uh, it, it's much too... Uh, it's much too soon to, to be even thinking about that. But, I mean, many young people in, in Derry City at that time, many young men particularly, and, mm. and also many young women, were involved in the military activity against uh, the British forces of occupation because of the historical situation in which they found themselves, because of the whole civil rights campaign, because the civil rights yeah. campaign was shot off the streets, because of the fact that civilians here in Derry were killed by the British Army before the IRA took up arms against anyone, before there were any bombs. Jimmy, did he ever admit his role in the IRA? Well, the closest he came to it, and the first time he admitted to it publicly, was into the Savile Inquiry into Bloody Sunday, which was in um, 2003, as far as I remember, where he claimed that he'd stopped being a member of the IRA in 1974, if I recall. I don't quite buy that. I don't think you were either, John, as an experienced Northern Ireland hack. I think it's evident that right through the 70s, through the 80s, through the 90s and beyond, the key figure straddling the political wing and the military wing of the Republican movement was Martin McGuinness, which is why the British government identified him as a key negotiator. And I wanted to share one other thing, which is I'll never forget talking to a as we did in those days, talk to a lot of British soldiers, officers who'd been in Northern Ireland. And I remember one officer telling me that in the 70s, late 70s, having, as he put it, Martin McGuinness literally in my sights, and he could have shot him. And they were strictly under orders not to shoot Martin McGuinness. And it was obvious to me that the British government had identified Martin McGuinness as someone that had to survive in order to take the whole process forward. Now, as we now know from various accounts, Martin McGuinness was the back channel or part of the back channel between the British government and the IRA during these years. But uh, let's hear another clip from your interview where he talks about the reasons why at that time he didn't think a ceasefire was even a useful approach to settling the problem. My position is that I would not be in favour of a ceasefire, no. Because I don't believe it would achieve anything at all. I think the only thing that it would achieve would be a consolidation of uh, British rule in Ireland. And I think that if there were to be a ceasefire by the Republican forces, it would be the end of an effective, credible opposition to uh, British rule in Ireland. Don't forget that uh, the Republican movement has been involved 
in Now, if we roll forward a few years, Northern Ireland today has a power-sharing government, albeit one that's currently suspended with the parties trying to find agreement on a new administration. But at the time of your interview, John Hume, the leader of the moderate nationalist SDLP, was in talks with Republicans on the shape of a possible settlement. And as we can again hear from your interview, McGuinness explicitly rules out any form of power sharing with unionists. It's clear to us that within the SDLP and within the Fianna Fáil administration in Dublin that there is grave uncertainty about how they should proceed in the future because, I mean, it's my analysis that what they're looking for out of the present discussions which are taking place is some form of a joint sovereignty type situation which Hume can portray to the nationalists as as being a stepping stone to uh, a united Ireland. I, I think that anything short of that will be seen as him just walking back to the old administration at Stormont because mm. any establishment of a devolved government at Stormont, inevitably because of the gerrymandered state and setup of the six counties, inevitably means that the unionists will control the vast majority of uh, committees mm. and bodies and just control our day-to-day running of the six counties. Jimmy, why do you think he changed his mind and what brought that about, do you think? Well, I think he was a pragmatist as well as an idealist, and he got to the realisation that in military terms, it was really a stalemate. I mean, neither side was winning, and you got the same message coming indeed from the British Army and from British intelligence. And in fact, British intelligence, as we know, was also involved in secret negotiations with the IRA. And I think that another critical element was the fact that politically, the mood was beginning to change in Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, and there was a sense of exhaustion, of political exhaustion. The third critical factor was, of course, US pressure. As you know, Martin McGuinness and Gerry Adams were at the forefront of fundraising and trying to get the Irish-American lobby on side. And it was evident to them that the mood was changing. And of course, what became a critical factor in that was 9-11, because once the Americans had experienced the terrorist attack of 9-11, no way were they going to listen to Republican IRA guys saying, would you support our campaign without a ceasefire? Now, he was obviously a hugely divisive figure, revered by many in his own community and reviled by many in the unionist community. But how do you think history will judge his contribution to bringing peace to Northern Ireland? Well, I think in the sort of tributes or comments that we've already heard about him, my sense of this is a reflection of one or two I've heard, but which I share, which is as a Christian myself, and I know that Martin McGuinness was a Catholic and went to church regularly and believed himself to be a man of faith. Us Christians believe that what matters is not really what you do early on in life, but how you end your life. And in that sense, history, I think, will judge him for the latter part of his life as a peacemaker, as a negotiator, as someone prepared to go that extra mile for peace. And 
in that sense, he deserves an honourable mention in the history books of Northern Ireland. Thank you, Jimmy. I think that was a fascinating insight into what happened in 1990 and what it led to. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., 